Okay. We'll go ahead and get started back in the class. We've been offline for a couple of weeks here, so let's just go back by way of review and we'll go way back. Remember the first thing, <coughs> excuse me, is that this, uh, the idea of chesed, by the way, is not necessarily a, a mitzvah, because a mitzvah has something wrapped around it, and that's halakha. Halakha details exactly how you do a mitzvah. On the other hand, what we did and what we have found out by just using logic and ration and reason, by the way, we found out that there is an obligation for the Ben Noah to perform uh, acts of chesed. Uh, and to be enabled to do that, by the way, we still have to conform to the halakhic mode of how to perform it. So in some sense, uh, even though it's not a mitzvah, it's an obligation, but it still has to be performed around the halakhic sense. So where do we find the halakha to perform uh, chesed? And, of course, halakha comes from the Torah. So as we <coughs> study, uh, we're going to find out uh, what it's all about. In fact, uh, that's what we're going to pick up today. It's actually, we're going to skip a few chapters because I said I wasn't necessarily going to just go through the book directly, but we're going to pick up on page 77 in the Kofitz Kind book, which we're using for our textbook, and it's actually a chesed explained. Uh, it's in section 2. So that's actually where we want to pick up today and continue our study. So let's look at what Kofitz Kaim has to say. He says, How greatly should one cling to the virtue of chesed? So here it's not just a mitzvah, is it? It's also a virtue. Uh, so it's interesting that he makes that statement that it's a, it's a virtue, something that <clears throat> would be virtuous not only for the people of Israel, but for every human being. Now, he goes on to say the extent of the required attachment is defined in the verse, and of course this is our text. <clears throat> yeah, it's like a trade or a principle, absolutely. Uh, and we have this really defined, you know, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, because he says, It has been told you, O man, what is good and what God requires of you, only to act justly and to love chesed, uh, which he explains, of course, as kindness. We can say compassion. Uh, there, there are many different ideas that uh, the word chesed actually uh, should bring to mind at least from you know from the Hebrew root, uh, but kindness, compassion, uh, even loving kindness in some sense. You know, it's like a uh, a trait that every human being, by the way, should embrace uh, to the fullest extent that 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 it's possible. So he reminds us, he says, at first sight, it would seem that we should always have been sufficient for scriptures either to read, to act with justice and kindness, or else to love justice and kindness. Now, uh, look over it's kind, like many rabbis, uh, when they come to a text, uh, okay, I'm still bouncing around, Andy, so bear with me. Uh, <clears throat> what we learn from the Kofit's kind is like many other rabbis, it's interesting to find out sometimes what the text is not saying as opposed to what it's really saying. Sometimes to really to make the effort to really key in and understand what a text is saying is to understand what it's not saying. 
uh, it actually becomes more clear once we understand that. And so what he's defining is, at first it says it should seem that it should have been sufficient for Scripture either to read, to act with justice and kindness, or else to love justice and kindness. But he says, more by using the expression, it has been told to you. In other words, uh, this is something that's already been related. And so he says, Scripture must have intended to convey an idea which man would be unable to discover on his own. In other words, there, he's saying that somehow this, this act of chesed, this act of kindness, is something that would come by revelation only. In other words, how to perform it. Or even to know and to understand it in some sense. Which is quite interesting, by the way. So he says, Scripture must have intended to convey an idea which man would be unable to discover on his own. So, uh, <clears throat> that's uh, somewhat seemingly important, by the way. <clears throat> now, everyone knows that it is very important to act justly. Of course it is. Uh, if, okay, let me see what you're saying. Because the Torah never mentioned things, it already assumes you know. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, now, his next point, by the way, is uh, everyone knows that it's important to act justly. Well, I wouldn't say that everyone knows that. <laughs> uh, we should certainly uh, teach people to act that way. I know that when we read in the Torah, it says, Justice, justice, so you per shall, you, shall you pursue. So there is this sense that surely we should uh, be concerned about justice. And in fact, uh, as Ben Noah, we should be concerned about injustice. One of those Sheva Mitzvot that we should be practicing and following, of course, is to create courts of justice. And, and by creating courts of justice, what does it mean? It means that we should uh, be involved in ridding injustice. Uh, if one were to go back and read the guy perplexed by, uh, by Rambam, you will find out that he stipulates, if not once, maybe even twice, that he talks about the commandments and then he talks about even the, the, the stories that we find in the Torah. In other words, in Genesis, when we, we're reading certain stories, he says that the commandments and the stories have basically three ideas attached to them. And he says those three ideas is to to rid incorrect ideas about God, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that he says is, is not only to give us correct opinions and ideas about God, in other words, to rid incorrect ideas about God, but also to teach us good morals, good, good values for our lives, right? <clears throat> but he also says that maybe the text or maybe the story that we're, we're reading in the Torah is only there to teach us how to rid injustice. And so uh, from Maimonides' point of view, the Rambam, he's saying that basically we have these three ideas within the commandments and, and we have these three ideas that are kind of central 
even with the stories that we read. Uh, and so it's to promote correct ideas about God, about our Creator. It's to teach us good morals, good principles, values to live our lives by. And it's also there to teach us how to rid uh, injustice. And so surely every one of us should find it very important to uh, to act justly. So he goes on to say, he says, This truth is clearly revealed in the Sidra Mishpatim. And of course, the Mishpatim is just plural for Mishpat, which just means uh, the, the idea and the concept of justice. And of course, he says, where is this? It's in the Torah. Chesed as well. Why? Because it is obviously important, as many verses bear out, as has been shown in our introduction, and we already discussed this in his introduction to the book. However, he says, the true meaning of the scriptural intent becomes evident from the statement of Chazal. And we find this statement in uh, Tractate Sanhedrin. Uh, hang on just a minute. Let me get some light in here. I'm kind of going blind here. I forgot to turn my light on. <laughs> I'll be right back. Okay. Nothing like a little light. <laughs> Much better. Even for me to be able to see Andy, believe it or not. I know it might be better for you to see me, but that doesn't count. Okay. Now he goes on to say, by the way, he says uh, that chesed as well is obviously important as many verses bear out. And of course, as he has stated, as he's stating his introduction, however, the true meaning of the scriptural intent becomes evident from the statement of Chazal. Uh, a lot of times I like to explain, sometimes I remember uh, in fact, I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine one time, and he said the first time he heard that uh, uh, the word Kazal, you know, he said Kazal said this and Kazal said that, and, and he made a statement one time. He said, you know, this Kazal guy, he must be a really smart guy. <laughs> and then sometime later on, he actually figured out, <clears throat> I guess he actually asked somebody who's the Kazal guy, and well, when he asked, then he found out that this was the opinion uh, of the rabbis in the Talmud, <laughs> the overall opinion of, of the rabbis in the Talmud. So uh, it's kind of nice to know, you know, who this Kazal fellow is. But in Tractate Sanhedrin 7a in the Babylonian Talmud, it says, if a person's code has been taken from him as a result of a court verdict, he should sing for joy. Interesting statement that we find in the Talmud that uh, he, he's actually went before the court and he's been basically found guilty of something because now his coat's been his, his cloak has been taken away from him and what does it say? It says he should sing for joy. Now, <clears throat> what happens is we find an illustration, at least from the Kofi's kindness point of view, that he gives us. Uh, and he gives us a story to illustrate why this should be true. He says, A band of rebels lived in a certain city, and many joined them. To strengthen their ties one another, they agreed to wear similar garments, all dyed the same color. They would thus be set off from the rest of the population and become recognizable to one another, even from afar off. Uh, much like uh, the gangs of today, right? You, you have to 
have a certain tattoo or wear a certain thing to be recognizable and and, and by the way that's something that's uh, uh been done ever since any kind of uh gangs have been around you know they they always had something that <clears throat> that they wore uh that they could see each other from a distance and recognize each other as being part of that gang so he says uh, they did this in other words to <clears throat> set themselves off and become recognizable to one another even from afar off. One day they crowded into the local tavern and drank heavily. Some of them refused to pay for their drinks and the owner would not allow them to go until they had left their clothes behind as security for their debts. They stalked out angrily shortly afterwards a conspiracy among excuse me, the conspiracy along with their mode of identification was disclosed to the king. Their activities were investigated and all those who wore <coughs> excuse me <coughs> and all those who wore the uniform were captured. Their possessions were forfeited and they perished. The only exceptions were those who were unable to wear their uniforms. They were not caught and so they were saved. And they said to each other, We thought that the tavern owner had done us harm by forcing us to leave our clothes behind. In truth, he did us a great favor. He saved our lives. Let us go and applaud him for what has happened now. For the future, let us make up our minds not to follow the evil ways of our friends so that we avoid being caught like them. So, uh, apparently this is a story that uh, exemplifies the idea that we find in Tractate Sanhedrin, but it also is a story that tells us that uh, it, that it has a good ending. Uh, it ends with this group of men uh, not being caught, not being uh, maybe put to death by the king. And as a result of that, they actually do Teshuva. They actually repent and they decide not to follow the evil ways that they have been following. And so he goes on to say, So in our lives, every person must realize that the appropriation of another's property may cause him to lose even that part of his possessions which he did honestly acquire. Especially, even when his very clothes are not untainted by dishonesty or forceful acquisition. As we have learned from the words of Kazal, well have they stated them. When the court concludes <clears throat> that the clothes a person is wearing were dishonestly acquired and therefore orders that they be restored to the rightful owner, the loser should sing for joy. Now now we understand what actually what Kazal is saying, right? Uh, <clears throat> the clothes uh, that is actually involved in the case were clothes that did not belong to that owner and now they are to be restored to the rightful owner. And and the loser is not really the loser in the case, right? But the loser should sing for joy, since otherwise heaven might have confiscated his property and he might have become bereaved of all his possessions. In other words, what Kazal is simply stating to us is that if we're going to be judged, then it might just be better that we're judged in an earthly court. At least in an earthly court, we are only obligated to return that which we have taken possession of, right? In other words, uh, something that we have stolen, uh, we we return it. But if we have this court that that, that rules from the heavens gets involved in, it, then we might not only lose that which we have taken unfairly and unjustly, 
but we might also uh, lose everything in the end. Okay? So now he goes on to say, he says, now we may proceed to understand the verse. Okay, let's check out what Andy has to say here. So a righteous judgment of the court, even if you lose at that time, is a cause for joy. Otherwise, if judgment is delayed or never comes for whatever reason, then the heavenly court may step in, which is more severe. Absolutely. You know, uh, I think we've always said that, at least from a personal perspective, I would say this. If I'm going to be judged for something that I have done, I'd rather be judged in the here and now. Uh, and 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 surely, uh, if there's true justice in a court, then I would sh I'd much rather have that kind of justice than to evade justice and, and and to evade the the earthly courts and wind up being judged by the heavenly courts. Uh, it might be just a little bit more severe. So in the case that that uh, is presented to us in the Talmud. Uh, why is the men singing for joy? You know, because the court found him guilty and, and told him to return the clothes. Well, the clothes were stolen. They were not his to begin with. And so he should sing for joy. Why? Because he's had justice. Justice has been served. And he's not going to be judged by the hand of heaven at this point. Which might be even more severe, as you pointed out, Andy. Okay. So now he's going to actually delve into the actual text, the text that uh, this whole book, by the way, is kind of wrapped around, and that is Ahava Hesed by the Kofitz kind, and it's that text that we find in the book of Micah chapter 6. So now he says, let's understand this verse. It has been told to you, of course this is the quote that we have quoted above, and it's, again it's in Micah chapter 6. <clears throat> When a person devotes all of his energy to the acquisition of property and takes no care that his gains be free of the taint of robbery, forcible exportation, dishonest dealings, and the like, he may delude himself into believing that, at least for the present, he is doing himself good by his exertions. And that the reckoning will only come at the end in the world to come. The prophet therefore enlightens us by saying, It has been told to you, O man, what is good. He intended to convey that contrary to the common belief, that it is good for man to amass wealth. What is really to his monetary advantage is to act justly to scrutinize all of his transactions so as to ensure that his profits were acquired through means approved by Torah law. In this way, he will make certain that his possessions remain with him. This is what scripture means only to do justice. In other words, what's the Kofus Kaim trying to tell us here? If, if we understand correctly what he's saying, in every uh, everything that we do, uh, we should be sure that it is done correctly and according to Torah law. That that is true justice. 
and because it is done in this way, you know, we, we scrutinize what we do. Uh, in, in our class today at our study center, we were talking about making decisions. And one of the problem with, with the youth, by the way, which uh, the book of Proverbs and King Solomon addresses, he addresses uh, much what he says to young people. Uh, you know, what's the problem with young people? Well, the real problem is they lack wisdom. Uh, but wisdom can be had other than living a longevity of life and having all kinds of life experiences where you have to adjust in making your decisions. But the reality is that because you lack wisdom, it's difficult to make specific uh, judgments. <clears throat> and so in, in studying the Torah and studying, of course, the wise words of King Solomon, a, a, a youthful person that's maybe not old, maybe not really mature, not really experienced a, a lot of life, can become a very wise person and make good decisions. But I will always tell people that's one of the greatest decisions that a person can make uh, to begin with is never make a quick decision. You know, uh, how many of y'all have ever had a salesman come to your home and they knock on your door and they present themselves and they're telling you what, you know, they, of course you might invite them in and, and, and they're giving you their sales pitch and, and somewhere in that pitch they say, you know, well, you know, this price is only good for today. You know, once I walk out this door, you'll never be able to buy this product. Uh, for the same price. Everybody, uh, I'm sure all of us at some given point in time have experienced something like this. Exactly. You, you, you got to buy it today or else, you know, it's either we're not going to have it, it's not going to be in stock, or you're never going to be able to get it for the same price. Uh, for me personally, when I have that kind of pitch given to me, and to me it's, 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 uh, it sounds good at the moment, but it's actually a pressure type sale. But the moment that I hear that pitch being given to me is I immediately say, I don't want it. I don't want it. Why? Because if I got to decide today, if I got to decide this very moment, I don't want it. <laughs> uh, and in fact, sometimes what you'll find out is that the same thing, by the way, that he's offering for this one time special, you can buy somewhere else at a cheaper rate. But but I'm just saying that you, you, you can't make those spur-of-the-moment decisions. And I know that people, uh, and I have in the past, by the way, have just made decisions on the spot. And, and those decisions usually come back to bite you, you know where. Uh, and what also happens and occurs in this is when we're making these decisions and, and choices that we do things, we can make a bad choice sometimes. And, and because of one bad choice, it takes so many good choices <clears throat> to to rectify that bad choice. And, and for young people, sometimes <clears throat> one bad choice can actually kind of wreck their whole life. Uh, that they can never really rectify that bad choice. So it's very important that uh, that we communicate to to our children and to the youth that not to make these irrational on the moment decisions because in the end they can they can come up to bite us in the end and then people make decisions based on what benefit they can get from it from the moment 
or what benefit they could get from it the next day or the next week. Uh, we live in a society where we have uh, this idea that we want everything instantly, you know. Uh, we have Burger King, we can have it our own way, and, and we have drive-through lines that gives us instantaneous uh, satisfaction. And and our problem is, with all this, is that all this instantaneous satisfaction is good for the moment. But what about the next day? What about the next week? What about the next month? What about the next year? What happens? See, real wisdom, chakma, can be defined in several different ways. Uh, Hakma sometimes like in the book of Proverbs can be defined just as self-discipline but Hakma can also be understood as having the ability to know what what choice I choose today what decision I make today I, I know what the effect of it is going to be 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road uh, that's real wisdom and that's the wisdom that we're seeking for the wisdom that we should have and so in our dealings uh, whether it's with individuals or whether it's with with organizations, businesses, and so forth, uh, we should be on like pins and needles to make sure we make the right decisions and make sure that we follow the laws that are prescribed in the Torah about our business dealings and how we should uh, how we should deal with uh, individuals. And that the income in which we earn, we should make sure that that income uh, is earned in accordance with the Torah itself, right? And that's what he's saying. He's saying, in this way, if we earn it the Torah way, in this way, we will make certain that that his possessions stay with him. This is what Scripture says: only to do justice. Okay, Andy, hang on just a minute. I'll give you a chance here. Thanks. So an example would be a job in which you find yourself acting very scrupulously, uh, how you conduct yourself at work and so forth. But you also have to know that the uh, company... Uh, by whom you're employed uh, is also a source of income justly. Like for instance, so you could be uh, be real scrupulous at work, but if the ultimate source of your income is derived from something that goes against Torah law, then that is not just. That's an example of being thorough uh, in how would you say, in how you amass your wealth and uh, derive your sustenance. Yes? Yes, I would say so, Andy. Uh, it's, just as, it, it's just as much our responsibility to act in this matter with our business dealings. Uh, it, it's just as much as an individual matter to make sure that the companies that we're working for are also operating on the same level. I, you know, I'm not sure that we are sitting on the board of directors and we know everything that's going on. But and when you're working for a company, you can you you kind of know when a company 
you know is dealing above board with other people uh, and so we should make sure because if they're earning money unjustly and we're working for that company that's earning money unjustly and which our income is coming from uh, it would seem that we have a responsibility and a liability in this case so I think you're right Andy and I think that it's, uh, it's incumbent upon us to ensure that uh, we're working for companies that at least have some level of honesty uh, and propriety about themselves okay so this is what the COVID's come he says this is what scripture means only to do justice right now he says next the prophet adds to love chesed now what does this mean he said he intends to convey that no one should deem it sufficient to ensure that his possessions are free from the taint of dishonesty and believe that they will therefore remain with him and that good will be bestowed upon him on this account okay let's go back and read this again what is at least from the Kofit's Kimes perspective what does he mean when he says to love chesed he says the prophet here from his perspective he says intends to convey that no one should deem it necessary to ensure that his possessions or we could say hers either one right that his or her possessions are free from the taint of dishonesty and believe that they will therefore remain with him and that good will be bestowed on him on this account he is also to dispense kindness and charity proportionate to his means otherwise God forbid his wealth might gradually be reduced as is related in Kurtavot 66b concerning uh, Nakdemian ben Gorion. Now, what in the world is Kofitz Khan saying here? Okay, Andy, hang on just a minute. This is just a side question that may be uh, considered or answered later, and that is how does one determine uh, the amount that is necessary to give to Savaka, to give to uh, charity? Of course, I'll realizing also that uh, Thavaka encompasses many things beyond money but that itself uh, as far as money you know the question what is uh, what he can afford because uh, a, a certain percentage is not really given certainly not in regards to uh, B'nai Noah that's just something to chew on there okay well I would say and this is a kind of a personal perspective, but I think this could also be backed up, at least from you know from the basis of Torah. As he says, he says he is also uh, if if kindness, chesed is being dispensed to us, right, from the Creator, uh, from the very time we're created, all of a sudden we have chesed, right. It's an act of kindness that God brings us <clears throat> in, into being, and He continually dispenses that to us. In what amount? And whatever amount He deems worthy for us. Uh, the reality is, uh, He could give us 
whatever he chooses because everything's his. Now, for us, what does it mean? He says, because we have this chesed that's being dispensed to us, right? He says, he is also to dispense kindness. Now, that's one thing, right? To act uh, with kindness and compassion toward individuals. And then also charity. So we actually have two different aspects here, right? Uh, it's not enough just to throw money at people. <laughs> I think sometimes people have this idea, well, if I just, you know, if I just give, uh, that's, that's all there is. Uh, it's, there, there's really laws that really govern what Zadaka is all about. But then, when we're talking about Chesed, Chesed is, uh, giving something with no expectation of anything in return. Absolutely nothing. Uh, absolutely, Zadaka is absolutely more money. You know, it's not just throwing, not just throwing money at people. Uh, one of the greatest problems with our government and the system that we have, you know, the welfare system, uh, which might have been a good system to begin with. You know, it was, it was a system that was something that was supposed to be temporary to help people that were kind of down their, uh, you know, their, for lack of a better word, down their luck. Uh, but it was to sustain them for maybe a short period of time and eventually, uh, you know, bring them back into the workforce and, and keep them going. But the problem with the welfare system is now that it, it keeps people in the same position. They, they never get ahead. And the reason being is because, you know, if you look at uh, job opportunities for a lot of people, they're not quite so many because... A lot of the people that's on the welfare system are, are the, the less educated people, so they don't have the many job opportunities. And the job opportunities that they do have are the lower paying income jobs. And so a person looks at it, he says, okay, you know, I'm drawing a thousand bucks a month off of the welfare program, and, and if I go to work, I'm going to make $800 a month. And it's quite obvious from that perspective, what would a person do? Well, I can sit at home and draw $1,000 a month, or I can go to work and make $800 a month. But the person is hurting himself, and the government is also hurting that person. You know, um, work is not a bad thing. Work is good. Well, that, that really resounds in people's ear. But work actually identifies something within you about worth. It's about self-worth. And a person that just sits home and is just fed by the government and taken care of by the government never has the ability to develop that self-worth. And I will tell you that a person that works and makes $800 a month as opposed to uh, sitting at home drawing $1,000 a month is much better off as an individual because he's able to work He's able to contribute something to society. He's, he's, he's working. He's contributing. And that's part of being uh, part of society. It's making a contribution. It's not setting and drawing off of society without making any kind of, any type of contribution. To be part of the society and to become part of the whole society is that everyone makes their own contribution. Uh, 
So not only are you, you making a contribution to society, but you're also developing uh, a self-worth. Yeah, you know, I could sit home and make a thousand bucks a month and do absolutely nothing. Or I can go out and get a job and make eight hundred bucks a month. Uh, but look what it does for the individual, though. And not only for the individual, but look at what it does for society. Number one, it takes uh, that person is no longer on the welfare system and so he's not really a drain on society now he's actually participating in society and, and who knows I mean look uh, a guy can start working at a McDonald's and wind up being president I mean uh, it, it's possible I'm not saying uh, that it's ever going to happen but it could actually be possible so that's uh, basically you know and, and your question Andy is how much do, how much do we know to give um, you know, whether it's to organizations or to individuals, uh, I would say that you should never hurt yourself or your family. In other words, you should make sure that the money that you're giving to that individual is not going to take away from your, your family. Uh, now, I wouldn't say your family's wants, but I'd say your family's needs, you know. Uh, in our society today, we hear our, our children, and we hear grand, uh, grown-ups even today saying, well, I need this and I need that. Uh, really what they're saying is that there's things that they want. Now, we have three basic needs. Every, every human being on the face of the earth has three basic needs, and that is food, uh, clothing, and shelter. And, and, and generally, I think about them in that order. Uh, because you don't have much food, you're not really concerned about a lot of clothes. Uh, if you don't have food, you're not really concerned a lot about shelter. Food becomes like the number one priority. So now, once we have our basic needs met, and we're not going to take away from those basic needs for our family, then we can be more disposed to give uh, whatever amount. But But just don't hurt you as an individual in other words don't make don't put yourself or your family in a position before where they become a drain on society uh, so when he says uh, we should dispense right kindness just as Hashem dispenses kindness to us and we should also dispense charity and he says proportionally to his means now uh, you know, it, not everybody can give a million dollars to some kind of charity or, or or to an individual. I mean, it's just impossible to do. We can't do that. Uh, so we give proportionally. In proportion to what we receive, we should be able to give out. So whether it's 10%, 20%, uh, I, I know people that <clears throat> make it a constant habit to give 20% uh, of their income. Uh, but again that always has to be taken in consideration of am I going to take away from myself or my family in other words am I going to make my family uh, become dependent upon the rest of society no and, and that should be the way that we direct our funds and our giving now the one thing that, and I'll say this and I'd like to say this by the way the one thing I found out about people that become B'nai Noah you know, when they were in churches, they, they 
obviously most of them were uh, were really involved in the church and, and they give their 10% every week you know and they made sure they give exactly that 10% and some even gave more than 10% but for a lot of people that become B'nai Noah it's all of a sudden it's like they've been freed from that uh, and that's not true and in fact I would say just the opposite is true you should become a greater giver now than you were before and the reason you should become a greater giver is simply because hopefully and I'm saying hopefully <laughs> you have learned more and as you learn more you should become more and more charitable and more and more kind and compassion in your dealings with people okay got a comment Andy yeah uh, an observation on that one you probably heard the saying you know whoever comes to uh, forbid the permitted will permit the forbidden, which I think it applies in some way to the situation about uh, some Christians or some uh, uh, very some people who are involved in churches and later becoming B'nai Noach, not being as involved or as being as charitable. Uh, I know some others have mentioned that, what you said. And it's funny, in the church... You know the law is abrogated, except for that tithe thing. You, you know you got to get give your ten percent tithe. Now that's a command, uh, as I understand. That's what I've heard them, how they uh, put it out. Even though it's very clear that it only goes to a kohen. So the effect is this: someone who thought was told his whole life, well, this is a command that applies to you, and then later he learns that it is not a command. Uh, maybe somewhere deep in his heart uh, that turned him off to some degree uh, to being charitable and acting with kindness. I mean, if, they, if there are B'nai Noah, he probably do so, but uh, but I don't. Do you understand what I'm uh, saying about that? That uh, because they were commanded in something you know, wrongfully, that they have to give to this institution it has to be this amount and even though they're not then they learn that it's not that maybe somewhere deep inside they became turned off to it yeah I think I know what you're saying I think a lot of people become delusioned you know about certain issues but the reality is that the more Torah that you learn uh, and the more that you you understand and 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 the more that you commit to living that Torah life, uh, the more that you should become more charitable. I mean, look, you know, this verse tells us that we should love chesed. Uh, if we read Proverbs, you know, the idea in the book of Proverbs, it says that God loves a cheerful, a hilarious giver. Somebody that just loves to give. I mean, this, these are these are verses in the text of the Torah and it's not that you give to this organization that organization or this individual but it's, it's about this act of taking chesed and applying it in our everyday life and every moment of our life you know if, if we're to emulate and certainly we are we're to emulate the Creator okay and, and I think you answered this a couple of weeks ago 
what was the first act of chesed? Or what is the first act of chesed? Us being here, being created, and and sharing in this world, by the way. And what day is it that we don't get chesed from the Creator, right? Uh, if we're to emulate Him, then we're attacked with that kindness and compassion one day a week or, or one hour a week. When, we're, when are we supposed to act? How are we supposed to act? And, and the whole point is, I hope the point is for uh, not just for the people of Israel, but all of humanity, is to eventually come to the point that we emulate our Creator. Uh, and that no, and and by the way, that takes a little knowledge and wisdom and understanding. That, like I said, we just don't throw money at people, and we don't do uh, random acts of kindness to people uh, just for the heck of it. But at the same time, uh, we kind of have to look at our whole situation we're alive and, and and deal with people from, with kindness and compassion uh, knowing when how all that stuff is part of, of understanding um, that we gain by the way from studying Torah uh, and it gives us wisdom in how to do that I mean just looking and seeing how God uh, pours out his chesed to people his kindness his compassion to people uh, that should teach us uh, to how to operate with it and so, uh, for those people, I would say, and there are people I know that, uh, yeah, they 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 kind of lost it, you know, uh, and they seemed like they were taken. And yeah, you do hear those verses, but you know, even even I remember being in churches where probably the book of uh, Malachi, a verse in, in Malachi, was always uh, quoted uh, quoted out of context and misunderstood, by the way, but. The, the one that they quote is in Malachi it says that you're to bring your tithes and offerings to the storehouse of God and he says and God says by the way to test me or to try me in this now we know the storehouse of God of course was the temple and, and they did actually have storehouses there were actually places where food were put uh, if you didn't if you couldn't bring your food your perishable goods you sold the perishable goods and you brought the amount of money um, but he says that he would open up the windows of heaven and he would pour out a blessing upon the individual that that conformed to that um, that you just wouldn't be able to receive in other words God's going to bless you uh, in an unbelievable way if you, if you conform to, to that idea but the interesting part Andy is that that section in Malachi is not really dealing with a Kohen. That section in Malachi is actually talking about the third year tithe. You ever hear of this one? The third year tithe. Yeah, the tithe of the third year, right? Now, who did the tithe of the third year go to? I don't know. Huh, good answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, and maybe this will give you a little incentive to go back and look, right? Uh, the tithe of the third year. Nope. Believe it or not. 
Now, you know, there were specific things that went to the Levites. Specific things went to the Kohanim. But the tithe of the third year, absolutely, now you're on the right track. To the widows, the orphans, and the stranger. Okay? So all of a sudden, that third year tithe takes on a particular thing. To the widows, right? To the orphans, and to the stranger. Now that's interesting, right? So, in reality, if we take that text, and, and, and I know it's improper to say, okay, we, we, we can't do this today, but can we? That's my question. Are we to overlook the, the, the widow and the orphan and the stranger today? Simply because uh, the temple's not standing, we don't have a place that we can actually bring perishable goods or money for the support of these people. You know, uh, to do so, to overlook these people, and to do so would to be act with injustice. How many times in the in in the Tanakh are we are, are the people of Israel? Let's put it that way. Which, in this sense, I think we should emulate. How many times are they told to take care of the widows and the orphans and the stranger that's among them? How many times? How many times would you guess? And by the way, how many times are they reproved for not doing so? There's a passage in Isaiah. And Isaiah says, Come, let us reason together. Remember that passage? And Isaiah, come let us reason together. Okay? Now what's the reasoning about there? Do you remember? You know, we, we usually remember that verse, but we don't know what's, what's the reasoning about. He says, though your sins be as what? Be as scarlet, they can be made white as snow, white as wool. Okay? But what's the problem? What was the major problem here? The major problem, according to Isaiah, is they're not taking care of the widow. They're not taking care of the orphan and the stranger. And in fact, what they're doing is oppressing them. Right? Now remember the Torah says that if you oppress the widow, if you oppress the orphan and you oppress the stranger, you know what God's going to do? Exactly. That's what Sodoma and, and Gomorrah Amor was judged for. They were judged for lack of charity and oppressing people. But in the Torah itself, very quickly, you know, it tells us that if a person oppresses the widow and the orphan and the stranger that's among you, God says, he, he tells me, he says, I will send someone to kill your husband. Right? And you will become widows, and and your children will become orphans. In other words, in the Torah we we understand this idea of measure for measure. And if you read that section in the Torah that speaks about that, it's exactly what God's saying: it's measure for measure. So, our our, our real goal in life, at least it should be our goal in life, is to emulate our Creator. And to emulate him means to act with kindness and compassion. Yes, Isaiah 118. You're right, Andy. Uh, 
and to act with kindness and compassion and take every opportunity that's presented to us to act that way uh, and to learn by the way that just just because there was a flawed system that took your money <laughs> uh, and used it maybe unwisely doesn't mean that you're just to give up on the system right look at this Torah system and look how it operates and 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 begin to decide that I'm going to act with chesed right I'm going to be kind and compassionate toward people and, and I'm also going to be looking for ways of giving charity to people but I'm going to do that based on the, the halakhic system that you find within the context of the Torah okay uh, that's probably okay our, our time's up uh, we didn't get too far but it's okay uh, we're not in any hurry uh, the best thing to do is to, is to learn and it, I always say that I'd rather know what one word means in the entire context of the Torah than uh, to be able to quote the whole thing uh, so I guess we'll stop right here we got to page 79 so we're doing really good right Andy we, we move right along uh, so if you got any other questions or comments before we close this session out good questions by the way hope we got some good answers <laughs> okay well thunking <laughs> is that like thinking okay well I'll give you a minute nobody's coming in behind us so if you have any questions I had some good ones by the way hope I had some at least some interesting answers And I try to give Torah-based answers. By the way, you know, most of the answers that I give you is not just something that you know that I'm kind of popping off the top of my head. It's things that I've learned from uh, rabbis about uh, about being charitable, about giving. Uh, yeah, you can give me a call. Uh, I'll sign off here and save this and get it off to Ray, and uh, you can give me a call in a few minutes. How's that? Okay. Well, if that's it, uh, then we'll stop right here on page 79 as we are dealing with the Kofitz Kaim uh, in the book title Ahava Hesed. And we're in the section, section 2, where he is beginning to explain what is this idea of Chesed. Okay? So, God willing, we'll see you all next week.